This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly sponsored by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. As a city supporter, we know you value delivery, and McDelivery is up there with the very best. You'll always be winning with McDelivery because just like Kevin De Bruyne, McDelivery puts your order right on a plate. So the only thing left to say is, are you in? Order now on the McDonald's app and you can also get rewards points delivered as well. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for you tomorrow. Only via the app at participating restaurants, 18 plus, rewards registration required, points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Manchester United 1, Manchester City 6, it's 2 for Dzeko. Tottenham Hotspur 3, Manchester City 4. They have made the impossible possible. Hello everybody and welcome back to the City Report podcast episode 5. I am Amos Murphy. And I'm Adam Booker. Adam, 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 Manchester Derby victory, and it seems as if the sort of last couple of weeks of pretty torturous performances at times have just disappeared in ninety minutes of utter blissful football. Um, oh, it was good. It felt good. It felt really, really, really good. It did. It felt very good. I woke up this morning. The sun is shining, sort of. It's randomly 80 degrees, which I think is about 30 Celsius. Uh, out of nowhere, it's going to go back down to like the negatives in the next few days. But uh, I feel like the, the football brought the weather as well. Isn't it crazy the things a Manchester City victory can do across the world? We've got <laughs> summer temperatures in early March. Yeah, it was it was great. It was great being in the stadium. It felt like for the first time post-COVID, for actually being in the stadium, football was back. And I'm not sure how the atmosphere transpired over to broadcast and whatnot, but especially at that last 30 minutes when United couldn't get a touch of the ball, it just felt like the entire stadium was in unity and and that hug of of strangers that we we sort of missed throughout covid and throughout the pandemic and just the the delirium and and watching the faces of the travelling united supporters go from joy when they, when they got themselves back into it to utter glum for about 70 minutes of the game oh it was superb it, it was a real sort of a real release of emotion, real release of energy that that had just been sort of building up over the last eighteen months or so. So I don't know what it was like watching along and, and the sort of feelings you were going through, but it was, it was an ace day for me. You know, it was one of those games where, and to to be fair, there's only a few of these in the in the history of the Eastlands. Um, but it was one of those games where the atmosphere was so good, especially like you said, that last twenty minutes. Once the once the third goal went in, it was just an absolute yeah, party. Yeah. And it was one of those games where the broadcast team just basically stopped talking for like a minute, two minutes, every once in a while. And they just kept panning around the stadium. You know, we saw the, we saw Pyro in the family stand, the Poznan in the family <laughs> stand. And um, it was just one of those few games at the Etihad where they just kind of stopped talking and they were just like letting it all soak in through the TV. And uh, despite me just sitting in my living room with my girlfriend next to me, um, it was uh, still a, a joyous atmosphere. I want to know which 
10-year-old in the family stand snuck a smoke bomb into the ground because when it went off because there was a few near me I, I'm near the away the away fans and the few near me and that sort of par for the course in big games and big goals there's actually one in the second tier which was a bit bizarre which isn't usually renowned for its sort of its raucous atmosphere so that was strange to see but then when that third goal went in and someone in the family stand sets off a smoke bomb it was one of the strangest moments I think I've ever seen at the Etihad Stadium but it it is bizarre. We were just saying um, before we came on about the fact that it's only three points that that City take away from that game. And it felt in the stadium, it felt like the reaction online as well, that it had been a trophy win, like it was a cup final or City had secured the league title. Obviously, that's not the case. There's plenty of football to come. But perhaps after the last couple of weeks, we've had obviously that Tottenham defeat in the last home game, a sort of stumbling performance against Everton and then... Oh, could have done a, could have done a lot better against Peterborough in midweek. It felt like it was a big moment and one that uh, a banana skin that could definitely have, have made City sort of slip up a little bit. And, and United have done that in the past at the Etihad. They came with a fantastic record, but it was just complete and utter dominance from City. Bar maybe fifteen minutes or so. Other than that, it was uh, they had a stranglehold on the game for, for the entire ninety minutes. Yeah, it did feel like it could be a banana skin. And, and you mentioned the record. You know that was um, Pep's only second second ever win at home in the derby at his mm, tenure at city mm. uh, which is unbelievable you know i think he's only yeah, lost w- lost once at old trafford um but you know it's been in the derby it's definitely been a tale of the away teams for five or six seasons now um but it had that feeling of and again it was it was a manchester derby back in the 2018-19 season I don't know how many games there were left in the season, but it, it felt like that. I think it was a 2-0 win at Old Trafford in, in the 2018-19 season, which kind of kicked off the final run in uh, towards that title. So it definitely had the feel of um, kicking off a long stretch of a cup final every week. Yeah, yeah, it feels like that. Well, it, it was an incredibly intense affair, um, utter elation at the full-time whistle, and, and it's probably the first time since maybe a, a Champions League quarter-final victory against PSG that I remember so many supporters staying behind after the full-time whistle just to, to celebrate and, and pretty much goad the United fans for, for a good five minutes or so. And even though it was only three points, there was a real sense of achievement with that win and, and the sort of what we can do going forward and what that can mean going forward because it, it did, like I said, it did feel like we were perhaps going to start a little bit of a rut. The points gap that we had over Liverpool had sort of diminished overnight almost, the, the games in hand that they did take advantage of. So apart from the sort of the the win itself, what were your own takeaways from the performance, from the from the achievement, from from the entire sort of ninety minutes and what it means going forward? I really thought it was a game of two halves. You know, I thought City were surprised by the way that United set up in that first half. Um, they probably thought it would look like most derbies in the past, where United kind of sink into their own box and, and look to hit on the break with a lot of speed and a lot of power. Um, but actually, United were set up in almost a four two four in possession and. Through that first 20 minutes, you know, City only had about 52% of the ball, which is not the way that this fixture has looked in the past. Um, you know, it was almost like they had Bruno Fernandez and, and Paul Pogba playing two false nines in a 4-2-4, which I don't think City has seen at any point this season. And, and you could tell that there was a bit of um, a feeling out period in that first 15, 20 minutes. And, and that's why it seemed like United looked like they were going to get a lot of joy out of this game. But then... In that second half, City seemed to kind of flick a switch. And, and once they got the third goal, you kind of see the United players' heads just drop. And, and from there, it, it looked like most derbies at Old Trafford, where it was just City passing around in circles until the final whistle. Yeah, I'm not sure if this is fair, but I don't know if City were a little bit lucky to go into the break ahead. Um, definitely thought City were the better team in, in both halves. That, that goes without saying. But there, there were moments in the, in the first half where United open City up with, with relative ease and even before they scored which was a, a, a give him credit it was a very good finish from Jaden Sancho there's a moment where Fred sort of just danced through the midfield and defence and, and probably should have done a little bit better with the shot and it took a quite a, a, a decent quite fantastic uh, last ditch uh, block from Jack Grealish to clear the ball and relieve the pressure but there was, there was real uh, especially between that period of City scoring the first goal and then scoring the second goal 
I thought United probably could have got three on on a different day and, and it required quite a bit of defensive resilience uh, to sort of weather that storm and so so like I say I'm not sure if City were, were, were good money for their lead at the, at the, at the break Definitely the better team, but perhaps weren't as good as the scoreline suggested. But that second half, oh my god, it was just it was it was football artistry. It was everything about it was superb, and we've all seen the the stats from United second half performance, and we'll just <laughs> we'll just reel them off one more time. Zero goals, obviously, zero shots. They had just four touches in City's box. And they mustered up an XG of zero throughout that second half. The final 10, 15 minutes, I think it was, of the second half as well. He managed just 16 passes. Rodri, on his own, managed 17, um, which sort of sums up the sort of the sort of performance they were putting up. And I, I, I was absolutely flabbergasted by United's second half performance because, like I say, I thought they had opportunities to really get at City in the in the first half, and they should have been coming out the break going right. We're one goal down. We've we've been to the stadium. This crop of players, most of them have been to the stadium and, and overturned a half-time deficit. And it was just spineless. It, it was utter spineless. There was maybe four or five occasions they actually managed to muster up a sequence of passes in City's half. And I was really, really surprised with the substitutions Ralph Ranyett made because the players who were, were giving City a bit of trouble, you think about that Paul Pogba pass for the Sancho goal, which split sort of it, the, the half of City's defence from one side to the other, he gets taken off and, and then suddenly it's just it just turns into a training game for City. Simply put, Manchester United are terrible at football. I think that's where we can go from here. They were absolutely terrible in that second half. You know, you could see the belief just drain out of them. But I think huge credit needs to go to City for that because they really smothered them from the first whistle in that second half. Um, You know, it was one of those games where, and there's been a lot of these in, in the Pep Guardiola era, where City will have a chance and, you know, go out for a goal kick. Um, or, or, you know, they'll get a foul the other way, whatever it is. And and the ball will turn over possession. And by the time the TV broadcast is done showing the replay of the chance that's gone missing city have already won the ball back. And it it just looked like the goal kick David De Gea's goal kick never happened because in the 10 seconds of the instant replay on television, city have already won the ball back. It was like you said, it was like a training session where it was an attack only training session and United just rolled yeah. the ball back out to City and they, they started again. And it, it just seems like even if they played a third 45 minute period, United still wouldn't have gotten any more touches or any more shots. 100%. 100%. Well, their only shot and their only chance of the entire half was when Yao Cancelo tried to get himself on the score sheet with a, a questionable clearance, which I don't think Edison would have would have got to if it was on target. But no, it, it was a really strange performance from United that second half. And like we've mentioned, they, they usually have City's number at the Etihad, or at least they have done in recent seasons. And I think they just gave up, which is which is a bizarre state of affairs considering the the sort of the stance and the and the pedigree in in European and world football over the last sort of half a century or so. But yeah, just a sign of the times. It really is a sign of the times of, of how good City were. Um, let's get into some questions then, because as always, we've got plenty to get through. Our first one comes from Ogonade, who asks us. Was that the game that Kevin De Bruyne announced his return to the top of world football? Now, he's had a... It's not had a vintage season, and we've mentioned that on this podcast in, in previous weeks, but the performance against United was astonishing. It was unbelievable, and he didn't even play the full 90 minutes. So, is De Bruyne back? Is this what we can expect going forward, do you think? I think it's worth mentioning when we talk about the fact that he hasn't had a vintage season that... You know, he had the concussion and, and the fractured cheekbone in the summer um, in the Champions League final. He had the pretty severe ankle injury he suffered with Belgium at the Euros. Um, and it took him a lot of time to come back from that. You know, he was not great earlier in the season. We've talked about all that. But this certainly was one of those games in which you sit back and say, yeah, that's the best attacking midfielder in the world right there. Um, and it's it's not even close, especially... When you've got a guy on on the other side of the field uh, in Bruno Fernandez who gets compared to the likes of De Bruyne a lot, and you could just see the the gulf in class between the two. 
Um, you know, everything ran through De Bruyne, whether it was spells of possession ca- camped out on the edge of United's box or if it was counterattacks, he was everywhere. Everything was going through him. And, you know, he's even <clears throat> waiting in prime position for those two tap-ins after scrambles in the box. And while we, while we give those those goals the label of tap-ins, which is almost doing a disservice to the goal scorer, those were instinct goals. Um, mm-hmm. And Mm-hmm. It was just, it was vintage Kevin De Bruyne. And I think I saw somebody on Twitter say it was a, a Premier League legacy making uh, performance from him. I think he probably already had a, a decent Premier League legacy, but it's spot on. It's funny because the last game, Premier League game played at that stadium was obviously the one where Harry Kane got a brace and the the world erupted and called it the greatest ever Premier League performance of all time. And it took Kevin De Bruyne, what, a mere 15 days to, to set the record straight because I, I've, I've been pretty critical of De Bruyne at times this season purely because his performance levels have stooped way below what we can expect. And obviously the, the caveat is the injuries and, and the sort of... The, the impact that can have not not only physically but mentally on a player as well. He was also taken out of the the leadership ring in inverted commas uh, ahead of the season, replaced with with Gundogan and and Ruben Diaz as well. So th- there's obviously been I'm not not going to say there's been a bone of contention in, inside the dressing room, but th- there's been something where it felt like he's had a point to prove. And and on Sunday against United, that was definitely. I can't think of a more complete performance I've seen from any City player in in a league game. I'm thinking the only sort of ones personally in my lifetime that could compare would be Aguero against Bayern Munich in the Champions League uh, when when he got a second-half hat-trick, I think it was. I know maybe it was stretching across both halves, but essentially City came from 2-0 down against Bayern in that Champions League game. But other than that, I think that's probably as good as it's got from a City player in the league. I don't know if you can sort of think of any others that that may rival it, but it just seemed like he was was on one. He was absolutely on one from the first whistle and just absolutely dominated it. As for whether or not this is him being back, it does feel like the over-reliance City have had on De Bruyne in the last few seasons has has definitely diminished this year. Um, You think of all the successes City have had since maybe 2017-18, and at the focal point of that has been a world-class Kevin De Bruyne. That hasn't had to be the case this season because there is quality across the pitch, and especially in his position. It it wasn't too long ago we were wondering whether or not he'd be in the team. What we have seen, though, is, is his transformation into a player who can turn it on when it really, really matters. And we speak about the moments in game that that change change not only the match itself, but the season itself. And it would be it'd be impossible for him to be dropping masterclasses like he did against United week in, week out. But it certainly is encouraging with the amount of big games that City have on the horizon to see that he is still capable of, of performing in the in the way he did against United. Yeah, and you know, the one thing you said there that's spot on is that this is a player who turns it on when it really, really matters. And it it is very encouraging. But look, that's nothing new for Kevin De Bruyne. Like, let's get this straight. He's a big game player. Coming into the derby yesterday, he had this record against the Premier League Big Six. Against Arsenal, he had five goals and an assist. Chelsea, five goals, two assists. United, a goal and two assists. Liverpool, two goals, five assists. Spurs, three goals, six assists. And then obviously he had two goals and an assist yesterday. That's 35 goal contributions against the big six from midfield. And on top of all that, he spent a lot of time on the physios table in the last two or three seasons. So that is just, that's unreal numbers from a guy who for some reason gets labeled as not a big game player sometimes. And, and, you know, he, he absolutely shows up when it matters and, and it's going to matter just about every week from here on out. And, and I expect him to keep showing up like that. Yeah, I'm going to expose myself. I think it was only last week we, we were doing our preferred 11s and I said, I, I, in fact, I think I did put De Bruyne in there, but I said that there's a real case for Gundogan starting over De Bruyne and it's taken him less than, less than a week to show, to expose my knowledge and uh, and just how happy we are that he did. Uh, but I, I wasn't the only person suggesting that he he perhaps couldn't be in the squad at all. A couple of question marks over the starting eleven, and friend of the show Daniel has asked us. Aside from the Champions League, which obviously has the the issue of of Kyle Walker's suspension, should the starting lineup we saw against United be the same for all of the big matches, so to speak, between now and the end of the season? Where where you stand on this, Adam? Because it felt like. City had the most balance we've seen in recent weeks and obviously there's been a bit of jiggling about and players had come in, players had dropped out and whatnot but that felt like 
as good a squad and as good a side and as good a starting eleven, bar maybe Ruben Diaz, as City could could post at this part of the season. Yeah, I mean, when we're talking about who's fit right now, I think this is 100% or this was 100% the, the best starting eleven that you'll see from City. Like you said, the balance is there. Um, I think there's so much balance in that front three. Phil Foden is making the false nine role kind of his own, where I think for the last couple of seasons, it's been a rotating cast of people doing that. But I think the yeah. best false nine performances we've seen this year have been from Phil Foden. Um, I think with a combination of Riyad Mahrez and, and Jack Grealish on the wing, you have two different style of wingers in, in some ways. They have a lot of similarities, but the way that Riyad Mahrez combines with Kyle Walker on that right is way different than the way that Jack Grealish is going to combine with Cancelo on the left. Um, and then the, the midfield three, uh, we mentioned this last week when we talked about our preferred 11s. I think just about everybody in the midfield three from yesterday is undroppable. And then the back five kind of picks itself, especially now with Diaz and Ake out. Um, so I think that was definitely the best 11. I think the only variation that you could see is perhaps Sterling coming in for Grealish on that left wing um, or yeah, so- something yeah. like that. But that's not going to be a, a very big drop off, if any. Personally, that that's the team for me and it felt like that was the case before kickoff and and the United game just vindicated that completely even when United were on top a little bit in the first half it always felt like City had an outlet to counter-attack with and that wasn't something we saw against Tottenham it it, it felt like putting five passes together at one point against Tottenham was, was an achievement and the same was the case against Everton we, we spoke about the width that was lacking against Everton and well Jack Grealish comfortably his best game in a City shirt for me and anyone who's followed me on Twitter or has listened to this podcast before doesn't need to know how much I'm a Jack Grealish fanboy and quite unashamedly a Jack Grealish fanboy but there had been questions about his his contributions his goal and assist numbers and, and whatnot but that was the perfect performance I thought that highlighted his importance to the City team and his ability to to get City out of sticky situations and and just he, he was skipping past plays at ease at, at one point and that's sort of that that ability to hold on to the ball isn't something you'd associate with many city city wide men in particular you could look at maybe bernardo in the center of the pitch and he has that ability to beat one or two players with a dribble but but jack grealish he picked up that ball and personally i thought maybe aaron wambasaka could have had his number um heading into the game you know we know aaron wambasaka's defensive qualities are perhaps outshine his attacking ability and, and that felt like a real good game for him to be pitted against a, a player who's just coming back from injury but jack grealish tormented him for the best part of 70 80 minutes and and well it's no surprise really is it when you look at how how City struggled over the last couple of weeks and and well he wasn't in the team the only change I could see happening would be Raheem Sterling like you say coming into the squad which is a fantastic problem to have when you think about the the goals that he's been able to to muster up over the last five or six years and and that is a superb addition that that could come in quite easily across that front three. And I think there's also a conversation that needs to be had about Phil Foden's performance from midfield against Peterborough, because I think that there is now room in this team for Raheem Sterling coming into that front three and pushing Phil Foden into midfield if there happens to be any sort of fitness problems with De Bruyne, Bernardo Silva, Gundogan, whoever it may be. I think we saw the first sign of Foden's potential future in that front three of City sign a striker or in the midfield three sorry if City do sign a striker down the line and and the false nine becomes history um, so I think that's something worth mentioning and maybe a, a conversation to be put aside for later podcasts but I, th- I just wanted to mention that ahead of time yeah well for, for those England supporters and, and those who have been uh, injured some of the less exciting World Cup qualifiers. They'd have seen a number of times Phil Foden's been dropped into there against their sort of quote-unquote lesser side. And I remember a game against Andorra, he absolutely bossed it. And, and granted, these were against painter and decorators and bricklayers. And, you know, so it's not exactly the biggest of, of tasks, but like you say, he bossed it against Peterborough. Um, and definitely, it, 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 the only sort of thing stopping Phil Foden from playing as a number eight is the fact that the people ahead of him are just so good. And to dislodge one of them, it would only take... A, it would, it would only have to come from an injury and that could perhaps open the door for Raheem Sterling. It leads on to our, our second question from Daniel, who basically asks us, Raheem Sterling's contract is 
due to expire at the end of next season. Where do we stand on the perhaps the possibility of him extending or going out on? A, oh Jesus, let's go again. Yeah, that leads us on to our second question from Daniel, who asks us, where do we stand on the chances of Raheem Sterling extending his contract or perhaps being sold? I think we spoke before about the possibility of one of those Manchester City attackers having to drop out this, at, at the end of the season. And especially with those new rumours linking City with Erling Haaland again, it seems like it's either Madrid or City for the Norwegian. It looks as if City are going to have to sell to make room. Is it going to be Sterling? Because previously we'd been sort of quite quite dead on the fact that he's going to be the one to extend, yet it seems that maybe stuttering a little bit and who knows, is he going to be the one, especially with his contract being uh, up for renewal in June 2023? This is a funny one because it seems to change with every passing week and if he plays two or three games in a row, then the stories around this are... He's going to sign a new deal. He's happy again. But then if he misses out on, on 190 minutes, then the stories come back up that you know he's considering other options and, and so on and so forth. So it's very hard to know what to believe in this. Um, one thing I would say is going to next season, like you said, um, if there's a striker coming in, does that push Foden back out to the wing? There's now one more winger to compete with. Um, Julian Alvarez is going to come in. Where does he play in that front three? Um, Riyad Mahrez at the moment looks like he's undroppable on that right wing. He's out of contract at the end of next season. So City have a decision to make there. Um, you've got Cole Palmer coming through. So we could end up next season with six, seven, eight attacking options. And the squad's going to be very bloated. And, um, I think you've obviously, I think there's a bit of a split in the fan base when it comes to Raheem Sterling, um, but his goal scoring record in the past has proven why he's so useful to this team and such an important part of the Pep Guardiola era in general. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised with him signing a new deal. And by the same token, I will be equally, equally less surprised if, you know, he says, you know what, I could play 90 minutes every single game somewhere like Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, Barcelona, wherever it may be, and, and go for greener pastures. So it's a really funny one that seems to just be changing with every every passing week is there a club in world football where Raheem Sterling wouldn't start every game unless injured I don't, I don't think there is I, I think bar maybe Liverpool who themselves are having a bit of a, a sort of refresh in their front three but still I think he'd, he'd get in there um certainly certainly at the moment um, I don't think there's a club in world football where Raheem Sterling doesn't start every single game. And that's something that he'll know himself. He's just, he's in a fantastic squad. And it, it depends where going into the sort of latter part of his career, what he values more, the opportunity to compete in one of the best teams of all time, or to maybe establish himself as one of the best players of all time, or at least of a generation. It's strange. It's an interesting one because... He's been such a, a fantastic servant for Manchester City, and there was there was the talk because he came off. He obviously came to City under Pellegrini, but there was the talk and the rumours that this was a Pep sign, sort of by by ghost mode, if you like, and sort of like it was getting ready for Guardiola because he never really suited Pellegrini's style of football and looks a bit lost at times. But ever since 2016, he's just absolutely. He's gone from being what people have been calling a £50 million flop to, to a £50 million bargain, and I think that's testament to him. I just wonder where you'd have him on your list of sort of all-time City players, because you look at the numbers and he's right up there with with the greats. Um, I think it's only Lewandowski and Aguero who have scored more goals under Guardiola, oh, and obviously Messi as well, <laughs> that, that, uh, that, that small fact of Messi, but he is one of the greatest players that, um, that Guardiola's ever worked with. So it would seem a strange move just to let him go on a whim sort of thing, whether that is a, a reduced deal this summer or perhaps a, a pre-contract agreement next year. Yeah, it would be it would be weird to see a player of that caliber kind of let go, almost in the sense of the way that we saw Bernardo almost let go yeah, this, let yeah. go this past season, and and now look at the season that he's had. Um, where do I rank him amongst the all time grades? It's a funny one because there was you know the two or three seasons in which he w- looked like he was the best winger to ever play at the club. 
Um, the form has kind of dipped in the last few years, and I think that's where all of the rumors of him possibly leaving the club were started. Um, I'll have to admit, in in some of the down years as far as his form goes, I was not very high on him, and, and I was really frustrated watching him play week in and week out and not putting up the same numbers uh, like he used to. But I think at the end of the day, it's he's obviously a player that is extremely, extremely valuable to the club on the field. And um, if you have him fit and firing in the way that we saw in between 2018 and 2020, um, there's very few players in world football that can put up those kind of numbers, especially from the wing. And that's something that we have talked about, about this city side in recent seasons is that there isn't a player on the team that scores 20 goals in a season um, anymore. You know, we, everybody has 10 or eight and that's how city score their goals. But people are forgetting that Raheem Sterling is a guy that from the wing scores 20 goals a season, 30 goals a season in all competitions. Um, so like I said, I could see him signing a new deal and I could ease, just as easily see him walking away and playing somewhere where he'll play every single week at a huge club. Um, but I think if he's staying, it's going to be another situation where he's going to have to come to terms with the fact that there's going to be competition, there's going to be rotation, there's going to be big signings coming in. Um, but with that being said, um, I could, I really could see it going either way. Just looking at his age, and he's he's 27, so you'd presume the next move he makes, whether or not that is signing a, a contract extension or moving on to a different club, that's probably going to be it for him would you say sort of like that that's going to be his his career at the top end of of world football so he's perhaps looking at that going do I want to be 31 32 leaving City with options reduced the chance of maybe playing for Barcelona or Real Madrid which is something he's on record said would be a dream come true all players say that I know but Sterling definitely feels like the sort of player who would thrive in that environment and, and definitely be able to shoulder it it's a strange one because the more we sort of discuss it it seems as if he could perhaps be the one that would make way especially when you think of Gabriel Jesus and he's still young he's considerably younger and, and can still develop and still can still improve and and is obviously a big favorite of, of Guardiola as well it's bizarre because I don't know <laughs> looking at it now it's like City don't need anyone else but there's moments where it does look like we need a striker and there's so much quality that we've spoken about. Being the man to sort of gel that together must be an incredibly tough task and, and one we don't envy. Mr Pep, but moving on then and just rewinding to the Friday before the derby with news breaking that Ruben Diaz was set to miss the next four to six weeks of the season through a hamstring injury. Now, just Going off sort of tweets I've seen yourself send and, and, and some that I've sent myself, I feel like we perhaps maybe were coming in at different points um, ahead of the, the weekend game, especially. I think it's I think it's a big blow. I think the stature he offers is on the pitch and his defensive attributes speak for themselves. But saying that, after the Sunday game against United, Laporte and Stones demonstrated perfectly just how well they can play together. So Kipak's kid has come in with a question just basically asking us how much we think his absence will impact City's title hopes going forward. It doesn't make Liverpool favourites like I've seen many proclaim on Twitter. Um, I think that's a bit of an overreaction. You know, the good news from this situation is that Nathan Ake won't be out as long as Diaz. So Ake will come back into the team sooner than that six-week mark that we've heard with Diaz. If you can get through this period without Ake and Diaz, um, you know, collecting three points in all the games and, and getting through, obviously, the second leg at Sporting, which should be pretty easy. We're going to talk about the, the setup of that later on. Um, then, you know, Laporte, Stones, and, and Ake coming back is is more than enough talent in that back that back four, um, where he will be missed is the leadership side of his game. He is obviously an unbelievable player from a talent perspective, but I think his biggest, biggest attribute, especially in a city team that is rife with talent everywhere, you know, his his biggest attribute is his a, his ability to organize. You know, we constantly see him shouting, screaming, and, uh, you know, he'll run a, the length of the pitch to congratulate somebody for a goal or for a clearance or whatever it is. Um, but as far as each individual game, John Stones and I'm Eric Laporte are good enough 
to win every single game that they play in. Um, I think the issues that we'll see is if City are playing three games a week for the remainder of the season, is there now enough depth, um, especially with Nathan Ake out for a little bit, um, to keep players fit? Um, then that's that might be an issue. But as far as one-off games, I don't see a huge drop-off in the level of the team from Diaz and Stones, Diaz-Laporte, or, or Laporte and Stones. Agreed. I think there's perhaps an argument that, not, not one that I would make personally, but there's definitely an argument that Laporte and Stones could be City's best centre-back partnership on their day. The only issue is that their day isn't every single day, and uh, Ruben Diaz is probably one of the most consistent defenders that we've seen in a City shirt since... I don't know. I think the only one that could rival that would be Vincent Company. And Ruben Diaz has definitely filled a hole that Vincent Company left behind when he when he when he left City. That sort of that presence on the pitch and that, like you say, the leadership role that he's he's been able to encompass and and we've we've waxed lyrical about it many a time. Just the little things like taking the ball away from from the goalkeeper against Brentford a couple of weeks ago and giving it to Mares and letting him settle for the for the penalty organising cover when the player is off the pitch injured and, you know, stuff like that, which necessarily wouldn't have always seen from someone like Laporte or Stones in, in his absence. And it would take maybe Fernandinho to sort of do a 360 scan of the pitch and, and sometimes then his performance would drop off. But it's it's a big blow. It, it, it is a big blow. Let's, know, let's not make any mistakes. He's a, he's a certain starter for City most games. I think if I, he only missed 14 games between uh, when he came in and, and up to now, including the United game as well. One thing that I think could help City, and, and it's not always something that has worked in, in City's favour, is the fact that we have an international break coming up. So the games in between now and the international break aren't necessarily the... The toughest is obviously an FA Cup quarterfinal in there, which going away to Southampton is a is a pretty monumental task as we've seen already this season. But Portugal are probably looking at it thinking, you know what, we've got the rough end of the deal here. They've got a World Cup qualifier against Turkey to play and a potential final in that playoff system against Italy. So if he's missing those games, it's superb news for City because he can come back. I think it's Burnley the first game after the international break and he could hopefully all fingers being crossed, be fit for that. The problem I think City have then is going forward after that, when we get into the Champions League quarterfinal and, and you know, we'll we'll tackle the sport in question in a minute or two, but let's face it, if City don't get through that that game and City are knocked out in the in the last 16, we may as well give up. We may as well just call it a day and I'll go home because I don't think any any football club should deserve to win anything after, after if, if that goes the case. Let's touch wood, let's hope it doesn't happen. But when the Champions League quarterfinal starts to come and that big Liverpool game that everybody's got their eyes on, if he isn't ready for that, then we could perhaps see a little bit of a wobble. And I'm not too sure I'd be overly confident going into that week period of, of Champions League quarterfinal, Liverpool, Champions League quarterfinal, potential FA Cup semi-final without the sort of the leader, the the man, the man who organises everything in that back line. Yeah, I think somebody is going to have to step up in the time being when it comes to the leadership role. I don't quite know who that would be because I think City are a team that lack a lot of um, talkative leaders. I think we saw that when when Vincent Company left the club that in that nineteen twenty season without him, there wasn't really anybody to be the vocal leader. I know Fernandinho is, but he's he's not a very loud, um, demonstrative guy. Um, somebody's going to have to take over that leadership role. The international break is a huge help, but like you said, it's the kind of two-week period after that that um, that international break where City are playing the Champions League quarterfinal. They have a home game against Liverpool in the league. Um, things could get a bit dicey there, but we've seen City come through these periods with without players like Kevin De Bruyne and, and, and things like that, without Sergio Aguero down the stretch last, last season. So it's going to have to be a gut check time for those defenders. Um mm. And I, I still am confident. I, I, I saw the sky is falling all over Twitter with that news, but I, I just don't feel that way. And I think the I'm gonna be I'm gonna channel my inner footballer right now and say the cliche thing of just take it game by game right now and, and get through every single game. 
Do you think it sort of says a lot about how City have changed in the last 18 months? Because you mentioned the sort of players City have gone without in big title charges. Um, Kevin De Bruyne, I can't remember exactly which one it was. It may be 18-19 when he missed the pretty much majority of the campaign. Mm-hmm. We've seen it with Aguero, like you've mentioned too. And that's always felt like a perhaps a, a sort of defining moment, a defining loss. Whereas now we're looking at the opposite end and losing a defender and a central defender of that, where City haven't necessarily been renowned for the the talent in that position. And suddenly, like you say, the world's collapsing at its seams. So City have got a, an incredible defensive record since Ruben Diaz came in. They've also, uh, so it's known, got an incredible record without him in the team, but obviously the number of games is is lessened. So do you think it's sort of, We've seen a change in in direction under under Guardiola the last eighteen months, where there is more reliance on on defensive performances as opposed to scoring six, seven, eight, nine goals in obviously never nine. But you know, you get the point. You get the point. I don't think it's a newfound reliance on defensive solidity. I think defensive solidity has come at a time in which Pep's system has changed from the the high flying hell for leather attacking play to a way more controlled style. And those two things kind of mesh together at the perfect time. Um, if you just go and, you know, think about the 2017-18 City team, you know, Laporte was still there for half a season. Vincent Company was still there. John Stones was still there. But look at the way that City was playing in attack. You had high and wide wingers with Sterling and Sané on the wing. You had David Silva and Kevin De Bruyne in, in attacking midfield, and and it was just all out, all out attack, and it was gorgeous to watch. But they looked vulnerable going at, at, mm. at the back. Um, but I don't think that you can just look at the defensive solidity and say that defensive solidity is just defensive solidity. This also comes from the way that City have changed the way they play farther up the field in the sense that they slow things down much more. They control the game much more. You know, look at the look at the Manchester Derby yesterday or the Manchester Derby at Old Trafford earlier in the season. That game at Old Trafford earlier in the season in years gone by would have been 10-0. But City got their two goals and then they just sat on the ball and they, yeah. they just passed the ball in a circle like they were just, you know, kicking about in the backyard. Um, I think that is what has led to the defensive stability as well is the fact that, they don't put the defense in precarious situations anymore. Right. Let's tackle the sport in question then, because it definitely leaves um, a few options for City at the back, and not necessarily the sort of the strength and depth that we've we've come to come to be aware of. The Kyle Walker suspension is still carried over, so in previous. In previous uh, games, we've seen John Stones go out to the right-back position and either Zinchenko or Cancelo stay at left-back. We could probably assume that Zinchenko will start on at left-back and Cancelo maybe goes out to right-back or we may see a youth team player come in. But I think it's really interesting what's going to happen between those two central defenders because you would presume in, in a sort of uh, when everyone's fit, Nathan Ake starts that game. Nathan Ake isn't fit. So are we going to see Laporte and, and John Stones retain their position? I'm probably siding with yes, purely because the gap in between that game and City's next league game is is quite substantial. We don't play till the Monday against Crystal Palace and then again until the weekend. So I, I don't necessarily see someone, for example, like Daniel mentioned on Twitter, Luke and Bette coming into the team purely because I think there's enough time for recovery and it's not necessarily sort of uh, a crucial game. Uh, you know, they, they can they can get through that at, say, maybe 60%, 70% and, and, and still be fine. The only other option would be is perhaps if any of them are carrying knocks over from the weekend. But I don't know where you stand on that, whether or not you, you think there'll be much rotation, whether or not you'll see somebody like Luke Mbete or perhaps at the other end, Liam Delap or, or in midfield, James McAtee get a start. I think there are two sides to this. There is the side of what I would do, and there is what I think Pep Guardiola would do, because those two <laughs> things often conflict with each other. Um, <laughs> we all. I actually see this as a free hit. The fi- you've got five nil, five. I guess away goals don't matter anymore, do they? But five nil from the away leg um, against a team that, let's be frank, isn't that strong. Um, you've now got. Two of your four senior center backs out with injuries, one of whom is going to be out for more than a month. I see this as a chance to 
put Laporte and Stones on the bench and give them seven days off, basically. Um, I genuinely, I would go with, and I might get slaughtered for this. I would go with a a center back pairing of Luca Mbete and Fernandinho. <laughs> that that is a hundred percent what I would do. Five nil is a hefty, hefty lead. Um, and look, even if we've got this bizarre makeshift back four, which by the way, Fernandinho played center back for an entire season. And yeah. I know that that season was a bit of a shit show for City. The point is, he knows how to do it. And whether he has the legs to do it, maybe that's what he needs. Maybe he can't run the midfield anymore and he needs mm. to be dropped mm. a little bit deeper. Um, but you've got a 5 nil lead. You've got two senior center backs out. And how did those two senior center backs get injured? They played in a game which they probably didn't need to play in. You know, obviously the the Peterborough game was a bit of a slog, and and maybe Ake would normally play that game anyways. But did Diaz need to play that game? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I would be I would be looking at this as a free hit to give them the week off and get through the game. And look, go at the other end of the pitch. You're still going to have probably the likes of Gabriel Jesus, Raheem Sterling in a team city are still probably going to score goals on Wednesday. So I see this as a free hit, but I, that's not what I think Pep is going to do. This is the sort of game. If it was me on football manager, I would be having my five-star potential 17 year old from the start. I'd be having Liam Delap. I'd be having James McAtee. I'd be having absolutely everyone you can think of. I'd be having Lavier in there. I'd, I'd be, I'd be starting the reserve goalkeeper, you know, I'll be starting Scott Carson, but let's face it, it's going to be full strength. It's going to be as as strong as City can go, and perhaps Liam Delap will get five minutes when City are maybe three or four nil up, and James McAtee may get the the additional time at the end of the game. Who knows? Who knows? I think after the Peterborough game, it'd be a shame if we didn't see some of those youth team players because I don't know between now and the end of the season when they'll get a chance because unless we get I don't know, unless we've got a, a similar sort of advantage in a Champions League go uh, quarterfinal second leg, then there may be an option then. But Southampton away in the FA Cup is going to be tough. It's going to be really tough. And then after that, every league game is going to be like a cup final. It's going to be like that Manchester derby where the full-time whistle comes and it's pure elation or deflation. So I, I don't know, it'd be, it'd be a real shame if we didn't get to see the likes of Liam Delap, James McAtee, even Lavier, even... Maybe Luke and Bette before now and the end of the campaign. I don't know. It, like I say, it'd be be disappointing if we didn't get to see a, a glimmer of them. So what you're suggesting is that City pull a Jurgen Klopp in Liverpool and just play the entire under 18s and and Pep yeah. just doesn't even show up for the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give it to uh, give it to uh, Ruffalo. <laughs> <laughs> like the Swindon game, he can have a Pep can have a day off as well. Get him some tapas and some nice wine, and he can watch it on BT Sport with with Jake Humphries and and the gang. <laughs> but yeah, um, oh, let's face it, we, we, this could come back to bite us. But five nil up, City should be progress progressing to the next round of the Champions League, and that's when it starts, really, doesn't it? For City, you obviously get the seeded draw. After the group stage, and then it's just open and sort of anything can happen. What scares me a little bit is these two English teams, I know three including Chelsea, but two local English teams still involved and probably have real good chances of progressing. It was bad enough in the league game. I don't know if I could handle a Manchester derby in the Champions League. I would combust. I I genuinely think playing Liverpool would be worse. Really? Yeah, because I think what, there from is... from a football point of view or a sort of uh, a feeling, emotion point of view? I, look, it it's no secret when you listen to me talk, you can tell I'm not from Manchester. I've been a City fan long enough to uh, feel the local rivalry. I've been there for derbies, you know. But in recent five years... There, the narrative of this being the Pep Guardiola and the Jurgen Klopp era pisses me off beyond belief because it's the Pep Guardiola era where Klopp had 18, 16 good months. Um, <laughs> so if this season ended in a way where we get Liverpool in the quarterfinals, lose to them, and in the same week lose to them in the league, all of a sudden the narrative becomes it's the Jurgen Klopp era or something like that. And I'm 
I genuinely wouldn't be able to stomach that because it's just so factually incorrect. So I'm right now at a point where outside of City's results, for the longest time, it was watch what United did, watch what City did with the same level of emotional input. Whereas nowadays, my biggest care in football is ensuring somehow from sitting in my couch that Liverpool win as the little amount of trophies as they can before Jurgen Klopp leaves the club. (laughs) So I'm at a point where I truly would rather get United, especially from a footballing point of view as well. You could beat them 10-0 over two legs. Liverpool, Adam, the Liverpool vigilante, <laughs> stopping them <laughs> through manifestation in whatever way possible. But we'll wait and see. I'm sure we'll do plenty of reaction to the draw when it takes place. And there's some nice ties still in there, and teams who could progress that could, you know, be a, a good a good game for City. And it doesn't always have to be doom and gloom. But like I say, we'll wait and see. But shall we wrap it up there? Do you think that's if we covered everything? We've got through everything, yeah. I um, think this has been sufficient. Yeah, yeah. Plenty of chat, plenty of chat as always. Make sure you follow or subscribe on whichever podcast platform you are listening along on. If you could leave us a review, that would be fantastic. It helps us bump up the ratings, get some more listeners, and that means we can get more questions. Just on that, if you've got any questions you'd like us to cover, it doesn't always have to be sort of match-related. It, it doesn't have to be time-sensitive either. We, we'd be happy to chat about anything. And just before we go, big shout out to the women's team who, with the Manchester Derby, we didn't get to chat about it as much as we'd like to, but they managed to seal the Continental Cup victory in a really good game against Chelsea on Saturday, coming from behind to to take that cup. And it's a, it's a nice nice achievement for a team who've, who've really been struggling at times this season. It looks as if going into the last part of the season, they're going to kick on and, and, who knows, hopefully secure that Champions League qualification, which is vital. But we'll wrap it up I think that's been superb thank you very much for listening I've been Amos Murphy and I have been Adam Booker until next time see you later see you Make sure you're geared up for Man City's end-of-season running with McDelivery. Great food delivered right to your door. By using McDelivery, you won't miss a moment of City's crucial running, and just like Kevin De Bruyne, they deliver your order exactly where you want it. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. Are you in? At participating restaurants only, 18 and plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply, see mcdonalds.com. 